All right. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of the chapter, let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for this uh, letter of Ephesians. I thank you for how you used uh, the Apostle Paul, this um, th- this truly intellectual man, this man of uh, success by human standards, this uh, this man who was excelling in Judaism, um, that you would reach him where he was, Lord, that you would utterly uh, break him, and then you would call him to the most unlikely people and places, that that this uh, highly regarded Jewish rabbi would be called by you to reach Gentiles, those that were uh, so excluded um, from the promises and 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 what they perceived of of your plan for humanity, and so I thank you, Lord, as as a Gentile, Lord, and for the vast majority of us in this room who are Gentiles by by birth, we thank you for this Apostle Paul, who you used to show how Jesus came for all people, and that we have been grafted into your plan. And so, Father, as we continue our study in Ephesians, as we look at this section where Paul really speaks to these Jewish, or excuse me, these Gentile believers, Lord, that struggled with their position within the church and this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. Father, I pray that as he writes to them today through your Spirit, uh, that we, uh, being removed by a couple thousand years, would see uh, what was uh, written in the original context and that we would see principles that apply to us. And ultimately, Lord, that we would understand uh, what you have done for us in Christ. Uh, we pray, Father, uh, that through this time of study in your word, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, that you would uh, just fill our hearts with gratitude to you, that you would uh, fill our hearts with love for one another, and Lord, help us to walk with you day by day, um, just all the more committed, all the more sold out for you, all the more in love with you, uh, for we hope that day by day we would grow in our understanding of what Christ has done for us. We would grow in our understanding of uh, of the things that we read about in the Bible, the things that we sing about in our songs, um, your great love for us. Um, Lord, help us to fully understand what it is that Christ did for us um, so that our hearts and our lives would be truly transformed by you through your spirit. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. All right. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, 
You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came by pre- he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For the, through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And Father, we do thank you for this section. We ask that you would help us to understand it, Lord, that you would lead us, guide us into truth. And it's in your good name we pray. Amen. All right. So as Ephesians has sort of unfolded. The, 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 the general understanding of Ephesians is the first three chapters are heavy in doctrine and teaching and truth. And then from that doctrine, chapters four, five, and six get very practical, like the so what, where do we go from here? How are our lives uh, supposed to be lived out, the things that we do? And uh I, I, whenever I go through Ephesians, it's, it's, it is my favorite book in the whole Bible. I find that there's like, there's tension because when I'm going through the first three chapters, it's like very, uh, truth oriented. It's very, these are the facts. These are the things that have been done for you. And there's not a whole lot of like, so what? Like, what do we do because of this? And we, we're sort of just left with, with head knowledge. And then I get to the second, half of Ephesians, and I love the meddling, that these are the things that you're supposed to do. These are the things you're not supposed to do. Oh, my little thingy-majigger just fell off. I think it's important. Robert gave me the thumbs He didn't give me the thumbs up, but I could feel it in my heart uh, that it's the right thing to do. But then the second like half of Ephesians, there's all of the things to do, and then in my heart, I get sort of conflicted because it's so easy to do all this stuff, but if you forget about the foundation of, of why you're doing this stuff, you get way off course, and you think that you're doing these things to earn favor with God, and so you need the found, so you need both. And, and so today, Paul is sort of, I really believe that this is like a segue into the heart of what's happening in Ephesians. We started out with sort of his introduction, his, his prayer, he, he went into their, their old life apart from Christ, contrasted with their new life in Christ. Uh, last, the last couple of weeks, we've really focused on that your relationship with God isn't based on what you have done. We are dead in our transgressions and sin, but through the grace of God, the work of Christ, we're made alive in him. Uh, our forgiveness comes through his work, not our own work. 
And then we sort of get to what I think is the, the sort of the, the substance. Uh, today's chapter, we're going to see this like this great divide between people, the Gentiles and the Jews. And the audience in Ephesians are Gentiles. Paul is this Jew. And Paul was called as a Jew, the, the Jew of Jews. We're going to get into chapter 3, his heart, his calling. We're going to understand what he desires and how God has used him in this role. Um, but he's helping them see that in Christ, you're in Christ. You're not a second-class citizen to the Jews. And so today he sort of is beginning this. We'll just um, we'll get right, right in here. Verse 11. He says, therefore, coming out of you are dead in your transgressions and sins, um, created uh, in God for good works, all of this master plan, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So we see that, therefore, transitioning from the last section, then he says, Remember, this is like super classic Paul. He says, remember, and he's not going to get to it for a couple more verses. And then next week when we start in in chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to say, for this reason, I, Paul. And then something like 10 or 11 verses are going to go by, and he's going to say, oh, yeah, for this reason, this is why I pray for you. And there's like all of this stuff in between his point. And he says, remember, but he's going to get distracted. Remember, we'll get to the remember in the next verse, that formerly you, who's the you, who's the y'all he's talking about? He's, he's speaking to the churches in this area of, of Ephesus. This was a circular letter that went out around to all the different churches. The recipients of this letter were not Jewish believers. These were Gentile believers, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And so he right away is getting into the tension that is within the church. I, I think this was so much of what the book of Romans was about, was addressing sort of how do Gentiles and Jews now in Christ get along? What, what customs, what cultures, what things do we do? Like, what are the essence? What's the essence of our faith? How do we sort of bridge these two cultural gaps? What is required of the Gentiles moving into this, really this Jewish faith of of following after the Messiah. And so he points out, remember, all of you that I'm writing to, you're Gentiles. And, and my people, the Jewish people, we refer to you as the uncircumcised. Um, I forget which pastor's kid it was, but I heard years ago some, you know, pastor's kids are a little bit different. Um, the things they find funny, the games they play, the things like this. And it was like, there, the pastor's little kid, the, the best insult he could come up for somebody else was, you are an uncircumcised Gentile kind of thing, you know? And it's like, this, for, from a Jewish perspective, to be uncircumcised, this means that you are outside of the promise because circumcision was this promise of God given to the, the, the Jewish people to remind them that they were set apart and that God had a special plan for them. And so the circumcision crowd, the Jewish people, were very derogatory towards those who were uncircumcised. And so Paul is writing, and there's clearly like in his writing, 
I think, I don't want to say there's tension in his heart, but he identifies with sort of all of the categories. So when he writes this, Paul was one of them. Paul wasn't cool with the Gentile people. He did not like the Gentile people. And then God met him on the road to Damascus. God utterly transformed Paul's understanding of holiness and sin and righteousness And Paul, for the first time in his life, realized that he was actually a sinner and there was nothing he could do to get right with God. And the only thing that he could do was done by the Messiah Christ on the cross, that he would suffer the wrath of God for him. And then God said, you know what? I'm calling you as the most pedigreed of all Jewish people to go reach this group that you guys hate, the Gentiles. And it was really genius on God's part because you have the guy that has all of the pedigree. He went to Ivy League schools. He had Ivy League blood. He had everything. And so what better person to argue and to make the case that Gentiles were grafted in and they were a part of this thing that God was doing from the very beginning. And so now when Paul says this, you were called the the uncircumcision. And I'm sure Paul remembered those days when he condemned the Gentile people. And then when he says, but the circumcision, then the the new Paul recognizes his people, the Jewish people, who he says in Romans 9, that if he could give his soul to save them, he would, because they're his people. He loves them. He longs for them to get right with God. He says, listen, this circumcision that they're a part of is something that, that men do with their hands. It's not by God. And in Romans 2.29, Paul would say true circumcision is that of the heart when a person comes before God and they understand that they're a sinner, God is holy, and the only way to bridge that gap is by coming to the Messiah who died for them, made payment for their sins. And as they do that, Paul explains that their heart has been circumcised and they understand spiritually who God is and who they are. And so he's kind of speaking from, from both sides. And if you were a Gentile, during this time, reading these verses, you would feel this tension that Paul's describing. Hey, remember you, the uncircumcision that the circumcised calls you, you. Uh, Do you feel uh, uncomfortable? Do you feel like you're a second-class citizen? Do you feel like you're bruised fruit? I don't know if you've ever felt this way um, coming into church, I know I certainly have. Like in my early years of when I began to sort of audit Christianity, I knew who I, like, I knew who I was. And I also thought I knew who Christians were. I was wrong on that front too. Um, and so for years, like kind of coming in to the church, trying to figure out like where I fit and I didn't know all the Christianese. I didn't know how you are supposed to act and talk and the things you're supposed to do. And I knew my past and it's still like, it's still with me. Like, like these, these subtleties that I feel in my mind, like I'm wrangling my boys this morning and I'm like going to my notes and I'm like, Oh, my tattoos probably like dangling out of my arm. What's this church If somebody's visiting and they find out their pastor has tattoos. Like, like these are things, I know how he feels about tattoos. We've had a long time. We actually feel the same about tattoos, uh, but, but it's, 
But it's like, these are the things that are going through my brain. It's like, well, that was my life apart from Christ. And that's not even to say that there's Christians today who get tattoos. Like, I'm not, but I got all these, like, like, I feel this. I have felt this. And then when I go into this, then I also think to myself, well, well, how do you, Gunner, treat those on the outside? Like, and this is like in, in this, this month, the, the rainbow month, I'll leave it at that. There's like super, super tension. Like, like our culture, they are at odds with Christianity. And this isn't, this isn't unique to us. Don't, we shouldn't feel like we're special. We've actually had it really easy. Like if you look at the history of Christianity, if you look at the history of the Jewish people, what we're going through, do you, do you think you could talk to somebody, a Jewish person in the 40s, and talk to them about how rough you had it? Like, uh, But there, there's always conflict. The world is at conflict with God because there's sin in the world, and there's an ideology in the world, and it manifests itself in different ways, in different times, but there's, there's tension. And so the, the question is, is that for those of us who have received Christ, like how are we supposed to interact with those that are outside of the faith? And it's really challenging. Like how do you respond? How do you interact with those that hold different political or religious beliefs than you do? Um, there's a book, I can't, I always think of Mrs. Butterfield, but I think that's not ketchup. I think that's the sweet uh, syrup. Butterfield? But I know you know the lady. How, the, how, the, the gospel comes with a house key. She wrote a book, but she wrote another book. And like her story, and this lady, super convicting book. Well, there's two of them. There's her testimony of like how she came about, and then she wrote the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Like Buttersfield, Butterfield, Buttersworth, Buttersfield, something along those lines. <laughs> I know the name of the book. Um, but this lady was like a staunch lesbian feminist, teaching in super liberal universities, super antagonistic to Christianity. And I forget the exact details, but it turns out that she lived next door to like a pastor or close to a pastor. And this pastor and his wife just began to like invite her over for dinner and let her share her views and loved on her. And just were friends. They weren't like sharing Romans Road. They weren't doing all this. Like they, they were interacting with her on a, on a real basis without like, I mean, I'm sure they had an agenda. And certainly, I'm just going to call her Mrs. Buttersworth because that's what I have on mine. She certainly had an agenda too. Like, but she talks through her journey of like over the course of this time, that there was something different with this couple and how they just didn't judge her, didn't come down on her. And then as she started to grapple with her views and as started to ask them questions and they came very graciously with them, with they came to her with her, their opinion, that it just transformed her. And now she's like this super hardcore, like Calvinist Christian married to a pastor, like, it's, it's amazing. But her whole, the whole premise of her book was like the gospel comes with a house king. Just this is what happened to me. Like it wasn't somebody yelling at me on the street or coming at me. It was just they opened up their home and let me eat dinner with them. 
and they treated me like a daughter and they just loved on me and, and the profound power of that. And so when I, when I read this section, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles of the flesh, which are called uncircumcision. Now hear the just derogatory. This is hatred. So these people were the recipient of that and things changed. But I also think we should read this both ways. Like think about yourself beforehand and how you are welcomed in. But now that you're uh, like a part of the team, if you're a part of the team, if you've accepted Christ as your savior, now how do you treat those that are not a part of it? And it's very, our world is so polarized and is so hostile and Christianity's responded in kind to how the world is acting. And I think that this is something that we need to sort of like, the truth is the truth. Like, I'm a sinner that's been saved by grace. We don't have to be hostile to the world. What we've been called is to be loving to the world, to, to share that, that, there, that there's a Savior out there who died for their sins. And their sins aren't any worse than your sins. I just found it convicting. Now he gets to the remember in verse 12. So what does he want them to remember? Remember that you, remember that you were, at that time, before Christ, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and with God, without God in the world. So what does he want them to, to remember? He wants them to remember, to reflect upon their time before they knew Jesus as Savior. And he wants them to reflect. Their reality and ours apart from Christ is that we're separated from God, that we're excluded from Israel. Uh, this, this, this might not seem like that big of a deal to you, but to sort of remember and to sort of frame the Bible and where we are in sort of our studying of the books of the Bible, we're just on a break from Genesis. And so if we were to go back to Genesis and remember and think back to the Abrahamic covenant and these covenants and these promises that were given uh, to, the, to the Jewish people or what would become the Jewish people, and really God's intention was to graft in all peoples, um, but they were excluded from the promises. They were separated from these things. Strangers to God's covenants of promise. And ultimately, because of their separation, they had no hope. And they were without God. And if you really think and you ponder this, and then you walk out to the world and you watch the news and you see what's going on in uh, classrooms, in your workplace, like th there's a whole lot of people in our world that have no hope and are without God. And this is a dark and scary and dangerous place to to be, and when you're in these, this place of darkness, bad things begin to happen. I think of how alcohol and drugs and all of these things are used to sort of mask the pain of, of living in a life where there is no hope and there is no God, and you're trying to mask or trying to give yourself something. But at the end of the day, none of it does what only God can do. And so if we stopped at verse 12, it would be like a really like, a, kind of like a sad and depressing sort of place to stop. Um, 
we slow here because I do think that there's value, like especially for those of us who have Jesus and have been transformed and we have hope and we have God and we have this relationship and we have this intimacy. We shouldn't, we shouldn't lose that memory of life before Christ. Or maybe you do feel these things now. And maybe it's because you haven't actually moved forward in your relationship with God. And so I would encourage you to really explore the claims of the Bible. What the Bible says in in short is that God loves you. The Bible also says that there's sin in the world, that sin entered the world and that we all have been separated from God and our sin condemns us. And so we have a problem. And the only solution to this problem is through Jesus who came. He lived a perfect life. He was a substitute for you on the cross, meaning that what you deserve, he took on. He absorbed the wrath of God. He did it all. All we do is respond by faith that we believe. And in that, we're told that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're transformed. We're, we're told, turned from old to new. And that there's this whole new life. He goes on to say, but now, these great buts in the Bible about this darkness contrasted with the beauty of something that God has done. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is beautiful. And my prayer for you, for each one of us, is that we all have had that but now moment in your life that you were far off from God, but then you heard the gospel and that you responded in faith and you had this but now. You who are far off are now brought near. You have this relationship with God. You have intimacy, relationship, hope, life, and how is this so? Like, how is this possible? Well, right there we're told by the blood of Christ that his atoning work on the cross made it possible that we could have access to the Father. It's not by your own work. It's not by your being good that when at the end of your life that you hope your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. It's It's impossible. The only way that you enter into this relationship with the Father is through the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood on the cross, his grace alone that you receive through faith alone. There is nothing that you can do. And so when you look at this and you see it, like when I see this, it's like, I want intimacy and I want this. And it's so easy for us to say, well, I feel so distant from God. I feel so distant. And then the, the, the question pleads like, Have you responded to God's offer through faith? Or are you trying to get close to God by doing things that bridge the gap? The doing things will never bridge the gap. That will never bring you intimacy with God. Only responding how God has called you to respond, and that's through faith. And then as Christians, it's very easy for us to grow distant from God by growing distant from God. Like, we can receive, we can have the Spirit of God, we can be believers, and the Bible tells us that we're supposed to, 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 to meditate upon the Word of God, to seek Him, to pray, to interact with Him, to be in fellowship with one another, that as we all are together with one another in community, God meets us. 
But so often in our Lone Ranger society, we think, no, 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 my relationship with God is private. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to live my own life however I want to live it. And then we wonder why, like, I, why is, like, I just don't feel like God's there or that he loves me or that he cares for me. But he says, but through the blood of Christ, we can enter into this relationship. And with that, he's going to expand. It's like he hears or he writes the blood of Christ and he wants to expand upon this. For he himself, this like this double verbiage that he himself, it's really emphasizing that Jesus, he himself, Jesus alone, solo, it's he himself. There's no other wiggle room outside of he himself. His blood is our peace, who has made both groups, the Jew and the Gentile, into one group and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances. So we want peace. Do you want peace with God? There's the, there's the vertical sort of implications that, that apart from Christ, we're enemies with God. And we're told that through the cross, through our submitting ourselves to him, through faith, we become friend. We become child. We become uh, one of his own. But then he talks about this dividing wall between the two groups. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing. We know he's writing to the Gentiles. We know his background. This dividing wall very literally could be the dividing wall that was found in the temple, that if you entered into the temple in Jerusalem, there was a portion for the Gentiles and there was a portion for the Jews, and there was no crossing that that boundary. There was literally a dividing wall that there were two distinct groups and they did not commingle. And then he mentions the Mosaic law which the Jewish people had turned into the system of works that if you do the law, as the rabbis clarified and made exceptions to, if you lived it out, then you were good. This, this is Paul in Philippians chapter three. Paul says that according to the law, he was blameless. He literally thought that the way he lived his life, that he was free from sin. And so he says, in his flesh, enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances later in Galatians, after he encountered Christ, after his revisiting of the scriptures, we believe that Paul, after conversion, went away to the desert for something like 14 years and just went through the Old Testament in light of encountering the Messiah. And then after that, we believe, or I believe, that the first book he writes is Galatians. And in Galatians, what he says about the law is the law was simply a tutor. The law's sole purpose was to show you that you are a sinner and there is nothing that you can do. And it was supposed to walk you up to the hand of Christ because it's at Christ that we find peace, that we find forgiveness, that we find forgiveness and redemption for our sins. And he says, for he himself through his blood, he is our peace. He's made two groups into one group. He's done away. The law is no more. But why? So that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. 
So the barrier that stood between us and God is now removed through the cross, and that's a beautiful thing. Through the cross, there are no longer two different people, two different groups. There's one group, those who are in Christ. Marita says this, diversity in the church is a glorious demonstration of the work of Christ. It is to be celebrated as it pictures heaven. It demonstrates the one new man. Now, I know diversity carries some like different meaning in our culture today. In the context of what he's talking about is in the church, there should be super wealthy people. There should be super poor people. There should be people of the darkest color skin and people of the lightest color skin. There should be all different groups because the cross is a leveling field for all peoples. And through the cross, it doesn't matter if you're an employer or an employee or if you're super wealthy or if you're super poor or whatever your preferred skin color is. My wife really wished she married like a a Spanish guy and here she got like pasty white, like, so it's like, you know, like white's not always preferred. I prefer chocolate, you know, like it's not like we tend to put these things in, but the reality is, is it's all a part of God's beautiful handiwork that we have this creator that is really like an artist. And so through the cross, there are no groups. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and there's unity. And it's all through the cross that Jesus accomplished this. And Paul's going to remind us that this isn't just something new that he's writing in hindsight. He's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19. And he's going to say, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. This isn't a new plan. And the point is that there are many paths leading to Jesus, but there's only one door to the Father. And so there's a variety. But through Jesus, whether you are far away, meaning the Gentile in your own culture, or you are Jews super close through the cross, we all have access. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So we're no longer strangers. We're fellow citizens. We're a part of God's household. Collectively, all of us, he's building us into this building of God. This isn't talking about a physical building. He's talking about his church, which is or are, is the people of God. And so in Christ, regardless of your background, you are a citizen. You are adopted with full rights, benefits of being a child of God. And so how do we celebrate the Lord's Supper in light of this passage? Like first and foremost, it's through the cross. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us. It's a memorial reflecting upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so through the cross, we're, we're reconciled to God. Through the cross, we're reconciled horizontally to one another that we can maintain and have and establish relationships that we wouldn't be able to have apart from Jesus in our lives. 
Your past no longer defines you. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. It's not about your long list of sins and the things that you've done in your past that that make you a second-class citizen. In Christ, you're in Christ, you're a new creature. There's forgiveness. And this statement doesn't apply to those of us who grew up outside of the church, didn't walk with Christ, or growing up. This, This applies to those of you who were church kids or are church kids, who grew up in the church, who you have been walking uh, in Christianity for as long as you can remember, that you have no recollection outside of Christianity. This truth applies to you just as much because your works, your association with Christianity, that doesn't save you. Only the blood of Christ saves you. And so you can't lean on your past. What we lean on is the work of Christ. If you lean on anything else, it's dangerous territory. If you had a bad checkered past, then you're going to beat yourself up and you're going to think that the cross wasn't sufficient for you. And if you were a church kid or whatever and you sort of thought you were like the Paul and you lived a perfect life, then you're minimizing the necessity of the cross. And you're saying, I was good enough. I didn't really need the cross. I didn't need what Jesus did. That was for the other people. (laughs) There's a whole lot in the Bible about pride. And it's probably one of the worst. And so we all come to the cross. And we recognize that our only hope before God is because of Jesus' work on the cross. And I do believe that as we're faced with communion, as we're faced with this text, we need to ask ourselves, Have we really believed? Do we understand what Jesus has done for us? Have we responded to him in faith? When we take communion, as the guys are going to come forward here, they can can make our, it's a reminder to us that Jesus was all in for us. And every time I take communion or the Lord's Supper, I'm challenged with, am I all in with God? Like, this is what he did for me. What am, am I responding in kind to him? And so that's something to think about as they pass out the elements. We'll just hold, get the elements and hold on to them, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. as we hold the elements in our hands, um, there's a couple things here. There's, uh, it's almost like this reminder to us of, of the door. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, good or bad. Nothing matters before God as far as salvation is concerned. The cracker and the juice are symbols reminding us of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that that is the gateway to relationship with the Father. Uh, And looking at this passage, seeing that the two groups and the the unity and the being together, um, there's something about participating in the Lord's Supper as a body of believers, like there's something special in this. All of us here 
doing this together. Um, and I don't want to make a joke, but I, like, there's got, like I, I wish there was a way that we could do this and like be linking arms and being connected because there is something about this that's saying we all are connected together in community and not just us, but believers around the world, that we are connected together, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are family because of what Jesus did. Like I'm excited like about Matthew. And, and my prayer is that each of you would have the opportunity in your lives to worship with other believers that you know nothing of their language. There's something powerful in that when you gather with other believers and you can't identify a single word that they're saying, but deep in your heart, you know what they're saying and that you're connected and, and, and that's what this, like, we're reminding ourselves that we're together, that we are family. We are being knitted together for God's glory and for our benefit. And so we reflect on our past and present reality that our relationship with God is based upon his work. And so we remember as we participate in taking this, we're also challenged by the great commission that as Jesus departed, he left us with the responsibility of sharing the gospel with the world that doesn't know Jesus. This includes people that don't speak our language, that don't share the same passports, that don't share your same political views, that don't share your same sporting favorite teams, that don't share your, your worldview. Like, we have been called to go out and to reach a world that doesn't know Jesus. And that might mean that you have to befriend somebody that is different than you. It certainly will mean that. And so, Father, as we take communion, we are so thankful that you came, that Jesus came to this earth to live this life, to suffer and die on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you, Lord, for how you use people in each of our lives to share the gospel with us. For those of us who have responded, we are just deeply grateful that people in our lives had the courage and the commitment to you to share, to articulate our condition before you and the great gift that you've provided in Christ. And so, Father, if there are people here who haven't received, I do pray, Lord, that you would help them to journey on to get the answers that they need so that they ultimately could become our brother or sister in Christ. Father, I pray that as we take this, that you would remind us of what you did for us, that we were nothing special, that we hadn't attained anything that made us worthy of the sacrifice, and Father, I pray that you would keep us humble, that you would sow your love into our hearts, that we would be able to love and to care and to minister for those who are hostile towards you, who want nothing to do with you. We pray, Father, that you would help us to honor you as we 
give of ourselves to love on them. Help us not to be sensitive. Help us just to stay focused on the greater mission. We thank you, Lord, for this body of believers. We thank you for the fellowship that we have with one another. We thank you for the unity that we have. We pray, Father, that you would help us just to love well. And we can only do this through your spirit. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.